Welcome to A Learner's Journey. My name is Molly Sanders, and the goal of this podcast is to inspire and motivate you by connecting you with a variety of passionate horsewomen and men who have dedicated their lives to helping horses and their people. I'm grateful you're here. Welcome to this episode. Like all of the episodes before, I am super excited to bring this one to you. Stephanie Burns is a very influential person in my past. I learned about her through the Pirelli program, as you may have as well. And when I found out about her, it's one of the things that really pulled me into the program because at the time I was teaching elementary school and the things that she was sharing were all about learning and motivation and they transformed the way I taught fourth grade. Stephanie is a very inspiring person. She took on teaching adult learning and through the years has put herself in the situation of a learner over and over and over and not just learned things but taken them to mastery and in doing that she's studied what does it take what are the things that get in the way and she's become an expert in her field and known all around the world as someone to reach out to when it comes to adult learning. So my conversation with her was so packed with information and stories that we decided to break it into two parts. And in this first part, we're going to delve into some of the myths of learning and motivation, like we are better learners when we're kids. That's a big myth that she's going to talk about. And then also another myth that if you love what you do, you should feel motivated all the time. So we're gonna delve into those things in this conversation and I'm really excited for you to be here. Hi, Stephanie. I am so excited you have joined us on the podcast. So welcome. Thank you for the invitation. It's lovely to be back with this community again. Yeah, I know there's gonna be a lot of people that are excited to hear from you and a lot of people that have never heard of you that are gonna be excited to learn um, with you today. So I'm just, I'm tickled. Um, and I, uh, I met, or well, I didn't meet you. I felt like I met you probably about 20 years ago. Um, I was teaching fourth grade and I would just gotten involved in Pirelli and, um, and the red and blue packs were out and yes. you were you were pivotal in those and talked a lot about learning and motivation and confidence and you completely changed the way I taught fourth graders. So there's some fourth graders, there's some or quite a few people out there that are probably thankful for the things that I taught them through you. Um, so that's lovely. That's yeah. lovely. Thank you. Yeah, Thank yeah you. absolutely. So one of the things that I'd love to hear about is um, a little bit about your story. Like, how did you come to study adult learning? Mm. And then how did you, how'd you get introduced into horses too? Yeah, well, the, I mean, the, the, the fascination with adult learning was really quite organic. I'd, I'd been in the U.S. military. I was trained as an engineer. I left the service and was an engineer for a while. But what I also did was I taught a lot of engineers because technology was changing very quickly. And I'd been a military instructor as well. And so I had this kind of, um, and I loved teaching at that level. I thought they were amazing. But as technology moved and we started to get more and more um, 
um, technology coming into the mainstream, you know, mom and pop's homes and corporate environment, I started getting a lot of requests to do some teaching of basic computer literacy within those communities. So um, I remember getting a call from ABC television saying, listen, you've trained our engineers to do all the new switching systems. However, uh, we have uh, 100 Apple computers sitting on the loading docks for the middle managers and staff and nobody wants to touch this stuff like they're terrified of this new, new technology could you come in and do some computer literacy training and i thought oh how easy is this I and mean, it's not rocket science mm -hmm. so they started bringing in groups of people to be trained now these are smart human beings most of them had university degrees they had were significant in their career then cream of the crop of their industry and so my hallucination having been training engineers is that when you take otherwise smart human beings put them in a classroom to learn something new that's going to benefit them on the job they're, they're gonna they'll be good at learning though they've done it all their life well that's right. not what i found right uh i found engineers are exceptional at learning because they're constantly having to do it to keep their skills up people who come out and get in a career um, now there's a lot more at stake around their ego and how they look and how they present themselves and they don't enter, thank God, schools over kind of thing. So what I found was the, the range of behavior for many of the adults coming back in the classroom were like they were when they were six or seven years old in school, right? right? They rock back on their chairs, they do the longer paper. If you ask a question, all their heads would go down, like your fourth graders, like Miss, right. you know, don't ask me kind of thing. Right. The worst was if they were confused, they wouldn't raise their hand and ask a question because they didn't want to be embarrassed or humiliated in front of their peers. Right. So they were happy to go away going, you know, nod in the class. Yep, got it, got it. I got that. That's all good. Go back to the desk, have not really gotten anything. And so this disconnect between adults for whom we make an assumption, know how to learn effectively or efficiently versus their behavior when I would have them as students was such a disconnect. And the other big disconnect is that when you had an adult student who was engaged in the learning process, the strategies they were using to learn, to study were the same ones they used in school. Right. Now, unfortunately, one, adults have a far faster, quicker, more mature brain, so they're better able to learn than they ever were as kids. Learning for children is very slow. I mean, it mm -hmm. takes forever to teach children to do much of anything. Mm -hmm. You know, 15 years to get halfway decent handwriting. It takes a whole semester to learn your colors and how to count in Italian. It's like, you know. But so we have adults with an adult mature brain using strategies they used to get a C on a history test when they were 11 years old. And unfortunately, as an adult, you can't get a C, right? If you're a professional, you have to get 100% of everything you need to know to do 100% of your job. Can you imagine like an electrician um, getting a C on their electrical studies? They'd only know like what two out of the three wires mean right it's like right. your surgeon got a c on his heart transplants no you can't do that right so there was this massive gap i thought between or need for adults to re-examine one their past school experiences which is where all the emotions were coming from to have a mindset that understood the nature of learning that it's mistakes it's failure it's trying it's confusion at the beginning 
it's been the need for persistence, you had mindset issues, and then you had all the skilling. So that adults need to read or acquire information differently. They need to make it memorable differently. They need, they need to top up their vocabulary because the vocabulary is weak, everything, the foundations are weak, et cetera, et cetera. So that kind of shifted me into, you know, two, three years of a deep dive really into the whole human behavior side of learning based on the best science we had in those days, working with Larry Wilson in, uh, in Pecos River Ranch up in New Mexico, and eventually moving to Australia. So when I moved to Australia, I came here to work with teenagers on these issues and all the teens had parents, right? So the parents are going, well, wait, what about me? What about me? Because right. so companies- I, I have a couple questions for you already. Um, and we, we on, may not get to any of your other questions. I know, I know. <laughs> so I just found a couple of things you said just really kind of rocked my brain. One of them was you said adults, our brains are set up to learn so much faster. Sure. And I think I know for me, and I, I think I speak for other people, that we often think it's the opposite. Oh, I know. I know. I to learn when I was a kid and now things are so hard and I can't oh, remember. And so that is, so um, can you talk a little bit about that? Like why are our brains, uh, why do we learn faster? Yeah, well, basically, because we've, we've cemented a foundation, our language is intact, we've had far more experiences, we have far more associations. If I'm learning this, it's quite similar, and I can grab onto experiences I've had with that. It's right. quite cumulative. Adults have better concentration. They have better potential for discipline, like you don't need usually to tell them to do things like you do a kid. Like kids survive school because there's an external tension called mom and dad, teachers, quizzes, tests. I mean, if you ask the average nine-year-old, do you feel like going to school today? 80% right. almost say, no. Right. No, I'd rather play my video games. Adults right. are in a different, have a whole different kind of maturity. They're also, adults are more analytical. So if they're learning something and they're running into a roadblock, they don't need somebody from the outside to usually come in and help them nut through that. They can do their own analysis, solve their own problems. They've spent a lifetime solving problems, right? Okay. So in any field I've done, from teaching people to play music to foreign languages, whatever, an adult will always, once you get their head right, like once you mm -hmm. get, your, get rid of that mythology, mm -hmm. oh, so much easier when I was a kid, um, or kids learn fast. They don't learn fast. I mean, look how long it takes for them to learn to read at even a quasi-adult level. Mm -hmm. Look how long uh, it takes for them to get uh, legible handwriting. I mean, you're looking at years and years of stimulation to produce that result. Um, so once I get an adult's head right, there's there's no, no activity I've ever taught for which a, an adult will not absolutely outstrip a kid in a, in a um, it certainly through their beginning and into their middle phases of, of development. So okay. it is, it's a massive myth, but the downside of that myth is that adults use it as their number one excuse for why they don't do what they're doing. Yes. And the other thing I would say is that adults have amnesia about what learning was like when they were kids, right? Uh, right. They think they have this, I learned so quickly when I was a kid. No, you did not. You just have no memory of the process. Because one of the things you know is once you've got, once you've learned to do something, you, you didn't make a memory or memories of the hundreds of thousands of things you did to do it. You just know that you know it. 
Right. We have no memory of the actual process of doing it. Right. But as an adult, you come into a new learning situation and you're acutely aware of the day-to-day-to-day-to-day-to-day things that you're doing to learn. So we have, um, you know, it's like, I'll give you one anecdote here. Uh, I've been working with musicians and um, I went to, a, I was invited to go to a summer school because I've been playing again. And I go to a summer school and I get a guy coming up to me and I thought I'm anonymous, right? Nobody in the music industry, in the pipe band community, Scottish pipe band community knows me at all. Great, 10 years of freedom. I'm not gonna, nobody's gonna talk to me. So I go to the summer school and, and a guy comes up older guy older than me who says oh I've been told to come and talk to you because I'm because I have a problem and I said well first the first thing I said was who told you to talk to me like who's uh-huh. on my cover here right. so he points to a guy who, across the way who's had been a student of mine 30 years before I said what's the problem he said well I can't memorize my music and you have to memorize music to play in a Scottish pipe band I can't mm-hmm. memorize my music so why do you think that is? He said, because I'm old. It used to be so easy when I was a kid, when I was younger, I used to learn my tunes. And now it's I, it's just aging. I just can't do it. And it, So my bells are going off. Going this. There's a fully functional guy who drove here, plays me. There's no way his memory is faulty, right? Mm-hmm. He's, he's fine. That's not the reason. I said to him, what's been the consequence of you not memorizing music? He said, well, I, pract- I go to the practices with the band I never play with the band anymore. So I don't go on parade with them and I don't play in concerts. And my heart broke. I thought all for the lack of a strategy for one, understanding his memory is fine Two, a lack of a strategy for memorizing music. This guy's dream of playing is like that. She might live another 20 years and never play again in a performance. So I said to him, I said, listen, if you want to fix, if you want to think about fixing this, see me at dinner. And I'll give you, I'll spend 20 minutes with you. I'll give you a strategy. You go home tonight, work with it, come back and let me know how it goes in the morning. So I go to the dinner and there's this guy and six other old men (laughs) sitting around the table saying, so I gave him the strategy. And when these guys came in the next morning, they were like 13 year old boys having just won their high school's baseball game, right? They were like, crap really work they said you know it's like i've memorized a part of music i memorized this. No. anyway so they um it's all for a strategy right now, every one of them was convinced that they had done it better when they were kids interesting and is it I just that, is it just that they lose sight of how they learned it as kids yeah. like they didn't yeah. like you said you you don't even remember how you got to the thing That's right. so it could be that they used something like what you shared with them they just didn't have it tangible um well they usually spent a lot more time doing it it's like you know they might have spent a year to memorize three tunes that they were going to play in a competition okay and they would have done it typically through repetition which is a really poor memory strategy so they would have looked at their music played it fifteen thousand times and then prayed that they weren't going to forget it when they Mm -hmm. took the music away and they had to go perform so for me it was about getting them to memorize the music meaning look at the score get the data turn the score over and play right away so that they were making a visual image of the score that they could rely on until it sank in deeper so i wanted them to memorize students quicker than they would possibly could have as a kid. Now we're not we're cutting off obviously people who have 
a, a mental or a, a medical reason why memory's not functioning. Sure. And we're cutting off the other end of the protégés, right? So, right. you know, the, the people who were raised, you know, their, their parents played music every single day and they've been absorbing and their brain's been kind of tuning up the, to this. They can learn a tune that they've heard as opposed to having to read it. You know, right. you cut that off and you focus right. on 90% of the population. Mm -hmm. But we've all done that. Now, what makes great teachers then because if you've ever, if you've done a lot of, uh, been around a lot of teachers, you mm -hmm. find the people who perform well tend to be lousy teachers. Right, right. Because when they do something, but you can't do something, they look at you and go, well, what's wrong, what's with, wrong you? with you? What's wrong with you? Right. You just do it. Because yeah. they have no memory. And they, their thought is, but I've been, I said, well, how did you learn to do this particular phrase on the guitar, let's say? And they'll go, I've always done that. No, you right. did not always do that. You spent three hours a night, every night in your bedroom as a 10 year old doing that. Mm -hmm. The best teachers have incredibly detailed memories of what their process of learning was. Yes. So when they're with a student, they remember what it was like in the first month of trying to grab onto that phrase and they can slow walk you through uh this kind of stuff i mean i i work with a guy named Stephen mcwhorter he's the number one uh drummer in the world at the moment he is won 10 world championships in solo drumming and i see him twice a week and the reason i'm with him is he remembers everything he did uh as a young person so if he says to me i spent you know an hour a day for two years to get that phrase mm -hmm. You think I'm going to complain if I don't have it in the next week? Right. Right. No. Yeah. I know. So it gives me a model of, or it took, he, he would say, the first thing I ever played to win the world championships was this particular set of tunes. I got, I played them for 11 years to get them to that point. You think I'm right. going to complain after two years if I'm not playing it at the level he is? No, of course yes. not. So I put a mark, 11 friggin' years let's see what I can do with this, right? That's awesome. So good teachers are people who have real, and that's why when I'm learning new things, I'm usually keeping a pretty bloody good record about what I'm doing, when I'm doing and the phases. And I know the year it took to do this or five years it took to do this, et cetera. Right. If I have a student, that's where they're going to be. And I need to get their head right about that. So Right. And I just would throw in um, that, you know, I think great teachers are constantly putting themselves into learning situations like in, in, yeah. in your in your life. I mean, when so I know a little bit about your story that, you know, you you started to really delve into adult learning. But part of that journey for you, you put yourself into was it motorcycles? Did you learn? Oh, to ride a motorcycle? You guys, yes, yes, I yeah. did. But yes, I mean, there's a lot. There's yeah, a lot. so you, I mean, you were doing dancing and then horsemanship. So so you put yourself into the world of a learner, but you did it with this view of uh, yeah. of of studying it. Yeah, well, usually well. I'd be given a problem in that particular industry, right? So in, with musicians, it was the, guy, the top guys would come and say, I've been, I practice every day. Like I'm at the top of the game, but I'm like at number 30 in the world and I want to be in the top 10 of the world. And they say, I, I practice every single day, but in five years, I haven't gotten any better. That's a typical Burns problem, right? So they come to me. So I look at how do you practicing for improvement, 
they practice for stability. They don't practice actually make improvements. So those are the kind of, so in my career, I get brought problems like that. Okay. Now, in order to solve those problems, many of them, I need to test the theory. So I'm back in the literature curating the best brain science stuff, the mind science stuff, strategy stuff, development work, you know, brain and body stuff. So I'm constantly curating that literature. The theories will tend to lead to strategy, but then the strategies have to be tested. Okay. Now, it, in some strategies, something that's going to take four or five years to do, it's not ethical, right, to get a group of humans and ask them to commit to five years. You, right. can't, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. So I become the first cab off the rank. So I will usually apply those strategies myself in an activity mm -hmm. until I feel it's stable. And once it's stable, then I will get a group and start to teach the group. Once I know I can, okay, it works for young people, older people, men, women, different schools. Once I know I've got that pretty consistent, then I will either start to teach it more broadly or I'll write a book about it. Okay. So, so that's kind of my process. So I, over the course of my career, needed to pick different activities depending upon what I was focusing on. So you know, Latin dance was a really big one for me because I was folk. Oh, I don't even want to get into the stories. There's just so many, but mo Latin dance, motorcycling, martial arts, I've run triathlons. I sprinted with the Olympic uh, sprint team here in Australia. Uh, and I, I have a master's in guitar. I played wow. piano, classical piano, but these were all kind of work and the horses. These are all work projects that in order to solve the problem, I needed to have the experience of what it was like to be in. Like Pirelli was like that. Like I didn't know anything. I didn't own a horse. I had a you know property on the on the on the um, harbor here with like a little quarter acre. Never mm -hmm. seen a horse. Mm -hmm. But Linda had used that material for uh, my material for a long time with her students, and right. so and eventually we connected. Because um, right. she'd been a student of yours, she'd learned with you. Been studying, a student in other courses, yeah, in the right. past. Studying adult learning. Adult and learning and teaching. Okay, so cool. Did, I think she did both of those programs. And okay. um, so, you know, it, but in, in that particular case, I was being asked to look at the, the, the educational quality of, of the materials they were producing. Right. Because although she gleaned a lot and they were producing good stuff, it didn't have a really solid floor of understanding adult human behavior in a learning context. And so they were kind of looking to me to do that. But the only way I could understand what was the experience of a Pirelli student was right. to become a Pirelli student. Right. So I sold my house, I bought five acres out, a little further out west um, from Sydney. I had people who taught me, Pirelli people in those days, who taught me to be safe with horses. Eventually, I had people who helped me have a horse at home that was safe for me to do. And, and as the story goes, it literally was, you know, me uh, with my horse on a halter and a red pocket guide, right? The old, the old pocket guides. Uh-huh. And I just sat on the ground and my horse would have been looking at that going, what are we doing? And eventually my horse just laid down with me. It was like, uh -huh. I guess, okay, I guess this is as good as it's going to get with this gal, right? Uh -huh. So 
that's where it all started. And it was only by becoming a Pirelli student that I could understand the experience of the human side of this equation, such that I later then could produce the red, red and the blue boxes. I could write more close to stay longer, the articles that were in the Savvy Club magazine, some of the big events that I traveled uh, with uh, Pat and Linda to. I worked with all the instructors. I did all the instructor training there. So wherever there was a need, uh, with students or instructors that I could do, then I could do them. But it, but it, I couldn't honestly kind of dive into that without the experience with the horses. It, it just would have been disingenuous. So that was a five-year commitment for me to dive into this horsemanship. I didn't. I don't wake up in the morning and go. I know what I want to do today. I want to go ride my horse. Like that is just not me. I want to wake up in the morning and go. What do I want to do? I want to read a book. Right. Right. Yeah, that's um, but I did it. You know, I did it throughout. And the, and the results of that were pretty phenomenal contribution to the educational value uh, that could be found in Pirelli in, in those days. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, like I mentioned, that's that was my entry into the program was it was when the red and blue packs were coming out. And yeah, it was, you know, as a as a teacher, um, it was, it spoke to me. And now it's time for a short commercial break. I'd like to invite you to join in on a brand new Facebook group called A Learner's Journey. The idea of this group came about because of all of the emails and comments that I'd get in response to these podcasts and people would share their thoughts and stories about their journeys. And I just was feeling like it's a shame that I'm the only one that's reading these. So I came up with the idea for this group, but the group is way more than just responding to the podcast. It's a safe and supportive place for horse lovers to connect and inspire each other. And there are folks from all over the world. It's a wonderful, positive, inspiring place to be. So I'd love for you to join in. All you need to do is search for A Learner's Journey on Facebook and you should see the group. I'll also put a link to it in the show notes. So I hope you'll join us. Now back to the conversation with Stephanie. One of the things that I definitely would love to delve into with you is motivation. Sure. And because um, as you experienced, you know, when you were on the ranch and um, around uh, horse people and it goes beyond horses, right? It, all, all humans experience uh, lack of motivation. Well, it, but, it goes to even simple things like do you get your rubbish bins out on Wednesday night or are you running right. after the truck on Thursday morning? Right, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, so um, all of us, I think, you know, those of you listening, watching, um, have had periods where you're just not motivated. You know, we all love our horses. We, you know, we love the idea of getting better. And, you know, I think we all have visions of what we want to be doing. Um, first of all, why does that happen? Why do we experience periods where we're not motivated? Um, motivation is an interesting topic because, it has more to do with how we're wired up as a human. Like what's the prime objective of your brain is not to expend energy. And so when you are 
thinking about expending energy, your brain will tend to kick up, kick in and try to find a mechanism to get you to not do that. Like, like excuses and rationales, like, well, tomorrow will be better or maybe later in the day or, you know, and, and so your brain goes, well, okay, good. I got my human out of doing that at the moment. So we have a biological and neurological issue around motivation. So that's one thing I'll say Two, motivation itself ebbs and flows is not a stable state. So we are never at one time all motivated to keep doing anything because it's just, again, it's competing with some other agendas that the mind or that the brain has. Um, so, I mean, for example, I can be really motivated to go out and do something and 20 minutes later, it's like, you know, I can go for a swim or go to the gym, for example, and I'm motivated to go. And then I get there in 20 minutes later, I can just feel my motivation ebbing and my brain again kicks in going, oh, listen, do a light session today and we'll come back tomorrow kind of thing. So it's going to get me out. Other times I can be not motivated at all, but it's like I have strategies to get there. So I get there and then 10 minutes later, I'm all fired up and I'm really happy I'm there. Right. So big things like your goal and your desires and your end things. This is why we pick goals, right? We pick goals because we picture ourselves and imagine ourselves doing things at the end of the process. Right. And they are typically positive. They come, you know, 3D movie. I get a lot of positive feelings with it. It's going to be really cool to snowboard down that black diamond run next year. You know, so I get really motivated. But what humans don't think about, and horsemen we found didn't think about a lot, is that they've got this ideal, but they never think about what's it going to take for me to wake up every single day and do what I have to do to get there. Right. Now, what you have to do every day to learn in a complex skill like your horsemanship skills, what you have to do is in and by and large, not fun, right? Mm -hmm. It's not pleasant. It's, you may love the idea of it, but the actual, I got to get off the couch and then I've got to make sure the kids lunch pack so I get the time and then I got to drive to the stable and then I got to get the tack and I got to clean my horse and then I got to, you know, it's like not... I'm not saying it's horrible, like you're going to die, but it's on the unpleasant, not so fun side of the scale. Mm -hmm. This is, again, when the brain kicks in and goes, oh, my God, my human is under stress here. Now, you're not going to die, but it's still the brain still perceives boredom, frustration, confusion. All of those things are perceived by the brain as stress. So the brain's going, oh, my God, I need to save my human. Let me give them some messages that if they think are true, they will stop doing what they're doing. Right. 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 So motivation is more of, of to manage motivation over time. You're not is, is the wrong idea because you're never going to be motivated to do what you have to do consistently. You'll okay. have good patches and you'll have bad patches. The game can't be about mo feeling motivated. The game has to be about not feeling motivated and doing it anyway. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. We talk in my world a lot about in order to get from where you are to some ideal place you want to be in the future with some sort of learning goal, you have to take action. You have to do things, right? If you want to learn to play three songs on the guitar and you don't play now, you have to see a teacher once a week, you have to practice twice a week, and then you've got to see a teacher week and twice a week. You got to do that for an extended period of time, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got these actions that you have to take in that direction. Now, uh, with horses, it's an everyday thing for, by and large. 
the more, so we talk about frequent actions, frequent and consistent, how frequently you take the action depends on the goal you have. If you're in uni, you might have to study twice a week for a couple of evenings. If you're learning a foreign language, you have to practice every day. If you're learning to play a musical instrument, you have to play every day. If you're working with your horses, that's probably three or four exposures every during a week period, right? Mm -hmm. Right. That's your frequency. Consistency says, when I'm doing this activity, I need to be 100% focused on what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I have to know why I'm there, know what I'm trying to learn, and I have to work at that. And then when it's done, it's done. So when you have goals that require such high frequency, you need strategies that enable you to get out, initiate the action, meaning you've gotten out, you've got the horse, you've been there for 10 minutes. And then you have to sustain that long enough for there to be some benefit. So going out, getting your horse, getting boom, sitting on it for, you know, and trotting around the ground yard for, you know, two laps and going, okay, that's enough for the day. Uh -huh. And then you put your horse away is not, is not sustained long enough for you to really get any benefit out of the work you're doing. So initiating and sustaining actions are behaviors. So what you need are strategies that get you out there to start. Right. And you need strategies that will get you to sustain it long enough to make a difference. Okay. Like if you want to learn to swim 500 meters and you can get yourself to the, you've got strategies to get to the pool. You're getting to the pool three times a week regularly, but every time you get in the water and you go, you said you're going to do 10 laps, but you do two and someone's kicked you in the head and you're starting to get cold and then you're starting to drift thinking about your work day. So you jump out of the pool. It's not consistent enough. But if you only went to the pool once a month, it's not frequent enough. Okay. So with every skill, you're looking for the balance, how frequently and what does consistency look like to sustain it long enough to get some sort of traction to get how many horsemen do you know who have been with their horses for five years studying and they're not one bit better with their horses than they were five years ago right nice. yes it's not, it's not due to lack of intellect or ability no it's just lacking understanding the parameters under which change and development because you're you know everything's about memory so when you're learning new things with your horses you're constructing new memories new things you know that mm -hmm. become stable and new things you know how to do mm -hmm. that become stable i mean we used to like laugh because if you took students who would come to the ranch with like their their um, carrot stick and their savvy string mm -hmm. and you watch their carrot stick savvy string behavior mm -hmm. oh my god father you know it's like they could kill people with these things <laughs> like they just had no coordination and that's why in the red book i said you can't put them with a horse if, mm -hmm. if like they're if their skill and finesse with the carrots and the, and the string are not good their horses are going to you're going to confuse the hell out of their horses right? right and then they feel like it's a bad horse not like oh my oh i just don't know how to drive my carrot stick properly so right. that's why we used to make them put the little styrofoam cups on the on the fence posts uh -huh. And, and they were not allowed, first thing was to be able to hit it once. Uh -huh. And then, then they played a game where they had to hit it two times in a row and then three times in a row. So they hit it twice and third time they missed, they had to go back to the beginning and start. So by doing that little game, they'd get like 10,000 repetitions until they could hit it 10 times in a row. Right. Once you can do that 10 times in a row to a styrofoam cup, now you can have a horse. That's where you're aiming for a time quarter. Right? That's great. So they, because it was understanding the development nature. Right. And, you, and sometimes you don't want to do it with a, with your living 
entity that you care so much about. It's better right. to do it with a pen post that doesn't care that you smacked it too hard, right? Right, right. And there's thousands, thousands of, of, of stories like that. So anyway, right. motivation is problematic because the things we have to do in the main have elements of them that don't feel good. Mm-hmm. When what we're doing doesn't feel good, the brain kicks in and says, stop doing it. Right. And we're really good at that. We become masters at procrastination behavior. Right. And, and I, I want to I add one thing in, because I, I think that, um, I think a very common phenomena of people, um, students that I've worked with, things that I've experienced myself is getting, getting out to your horse, you start playing with your horse and all of a sudden you have, a, you're, you're actually really enjoying it. So when you were saying, you know, often it's not fun, I know what you're talking about because learning can be awkward and weird and that part of it cannot be fun. But getting out there and starting and doing something with your horse, most people then say, oh my gosh, you know, now I'm having a great time. But then the next day, they still have those same excuses that come up and myself included. I'm not saying, you know, I don't do that. Um, And I think hearing from you saying that that's a normal thing that your brain is trying to keep you comfortable um, is really helpful. But then what do you do? Like, what do you do with those excuses? I hope you enjoyed part one with Stephanie and you have plenty of ideas to soak on for the next couple of weeks until part two comes out. If you're interested in diving even deeper into the topics of learning and motivation, Stephanie has two fabulous books that I would highly recommend, and you can find them on her website, stephanieburns.com. One is Move Closer, Stay Longer, and the other one is The Great Lies We Live By. I'll also include links to these books in the show notes. In part two, we're going to spend quite a bit of time on a variety of different strategies that you can put into practice. And I realize we left you with a cliffhanger question. She'll be answering that in part two. As Stephanie says on her website, stephanieburns.com, setting goals is easy. Achieving them is hard. So in part two, we're going to look into why achieving goals is hard and ways to make them more achievable. I'm super excited to share it with you. Thank you for being a part of this adventure.